Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Well, how, how are you doing with, uh, with the, the great tome? I'm trying to keep up. You know, I read, what is it, chapter six. Mm-hmm. I still struggle with understanding all the, the different concepts and ideas. I'm fighting through, you know, through some of that. I pick up enough to be dangerous. Um, <laughs> you know, like uh, Soren Kierkegaard, I'd like to do more reading of his uh, just because I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, a Christian is somebody who imitates Christ, who does the things that Christ does. I don't know if that's the best way to Kierkegaard is more complicated than that. Don't overcomplicate it. What we're always striving for, you know, all the arcane language, it's just different ways of articulating a universal experience. And so I think we all have this experience. The psychoanalytic approach to it is giving words to things that we often don't. Kierkegaard is kind of funny because I was shocked when I started, you know, getting into the postmodern. Nearly everybody you run into has read Kierkegaard. And it doesn't matter whether they're atheist or theist. He's had a huge impact. I think he is then simply addressing the human condition. I think this is what novels do. You know, when we read a novel and it seems to ring true, it's just hitting upon the human condition. I like that you've turned back to Genesis 3, because I think actually in that story, whatever you want to think about that story, in that story, you can say exactly the same thing. It's the archetype of all of this discussion. The Genesis 3 stuff, you just have to keep going back to it. You know, you read that story, and what is the thing that they're experiencing? Well, it's shame. There's not any particular Hebrew word. There's a lot. There's about 14 different words. The picture is that they're undone when they turn from, and the tree of life, you know, well, it's just the presence of God. It's the literally the tree of breath, life, breath, Holy Spirit. But all, all those things are there. There is a loss of access to God or life, and that's the shame experience. That is the universal human condition. In other words, people fall apart. The stuff that we're doing in the psychoanalytic literature is just another way of saying that. Once you have this problem in place, uh, first of all, that there is an unfolding of that problem in the subsequent generations. What is happening with the first couple, well, then this Cain kills Abel. Why does Cain kill Abel? Same condition, that in some way Abel has displaced him, shamed him. He wants access to God. And so it is just the replay. And then the next person in the scripture is Lamech. And so Lamech is the guy who writes poetry, but it's murder poetry. Ada and Zillah have killed me a young man, a young... Some people think there may even be two people. Lamech is a killer, and he's proud of it. In other words, Cain had said, I'll take revenge seven times seven. Lamech enacts, you know, what we see in Cain. And Lamech seems to be representative of that generation of Noah who are 
psychopathic killers. I mean, that's the thing. They, they're, they're murderers. You know, in a Girardian sense in which there is just a kind of mass slaughter, that is that there's mimetic desire. So if you had to name the religion of these people, there's no idolatry as of yet. At least it's not appearing. What we have is the religion of Lamech, the religion of Cain, in which every person is, they're narcissistic killers. They're dangerous people. They're in a condition of shamelessness. So shame is actually not the worst condition you can be in, because the whole point of shame is, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, you know, when you experience shame, it doesn't take much for us to be put to shame, but we just want to run and hide. And that, that condition, though, points to a condition that's always there within us, a possibility that is always there within us. The way that we resolve the shame, of course, is through the false covering. They make clothes for themselves, but that, that's the equivalent of pride. In other words, what is pride? Pride is this thing that we do identity through some other means. We got really nice leaves, or we got position or power, or what, what is it that we're all trying to to get rid of, to, to not come near. It is that shame experience that we don't want to be undone. I think all of this ties also into the notion of scapegoating. You know, the worst thing you want to do is to be identified with the one who is put to shame. It's almost an un unbearable thing. The idea of shame is that it's corporate. And this is my experience in Japan, you know, that people are continually subject to being cast out of the group, being put to shame, losing face. It's the worst thing that can happen to you, and, and the natural end of that is suicide. In other words, there really is no recourse in Japan uh, once the group turns on you. And so even young kids, I mean, there's, I think the highest suicide rate among junior high students is in Japan. All I'm doing right now is saying in different words what I've described in these chapters, maybe especially chapter six. Okay, what is the symbolic order, the law, the identity? Well, that's just, that's the thing that we would attach to, that we would inscribe ourselves in or be inscribed with the law, an enduring order. In other words, what shame is, you're undone, you're subject to time, you're, you're in pursuit of immortality. My blog today is just kind of a simple way of, of doing this whole thing. I think I was kind of slow as a little kid. And so I have memories of things that I think all children experience. I remember, and I can't, I don't actually remember the age, so I, but at some point I came upon a formula and I, I felt so satisfied with my little formula. And it was, I am me, you know, I'm me. It's ipsaity, that is the, the dis discovery of the, the way in which we coincide with ourselves. And I, I don't know if you're hearing echoes here. In Descartes. Oh, oh, gotcha. <laughs> Not literally echoes. Yeah. I, I, I actually, when you said that, uh, I automatically went to that, so yes. I think that what Descartes is describing, what philosophy is describing, what psychoanalysis is describing, is the basic stages in human development. I think we all, we go through this thing, normal children, do it and then forget it. 
we can access this. I, I literally remember saying the phrase, and then I realized, oh, I have to say the phrase. In other words, if I stop saying the phrase, I am me, you initially think, oh, I discover that. That's a continually abiding discovery. But of course, you don't get the feeling without the sentence. That's precisely what you're getting with Rene Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. You've heard the joke. You know, Rene Descartes goes into the bar. The bartender says, uh, would you have a beer? And he says, I think not. And he disappears. <laughs> Which is the implication, as long as he's, he's thinking, that he has being. I, I know that sounds strange, but I literally think basic human desire, what he's hit upon there, is not a truth, but kind of the unsettled truth of what it means to be human. The symbolic order, the superego, the conscience, the law of the mind, however you want to say this, and the body, and not the physical body. This chapter makes something very simple. The most arcane part of Zizek and Lacan is the real. You know, what is that thing? It's just a negative force. It's the gap that a little child experiences between I am me. In other words, you don't hold together. You don't coincide. The gap, though, the real, that negative force, Lacan is just saying, and I think Paul is saying, is just the body. The body, the biological body, is something that we, in some way, gets out of control. In Paul, uh, he's going to refer to the, the flesh. And, of course, what we mean by the flesh is not simply the biological body, it's the body written over with the law. Suddenly, the body becomes out of control. Really, you know, eating, sex, those sorts of things. Every animal does it. There's nothing special about any of it. And yet, written over with this symbolic, suddenly these things take on an exponential desire. Suddenly, we can be consumed by what should be just the functions of life. But the grab for life, I think, is what we're describing. To establish ourselves then through these drives. The drives become something more than mere biological drives. I think that's what Paul means by the body of death. You know, this is where I depart from David Bentley Hart. David Bentley Hart is just a good Neoplatonist, and he says, oh yeah, Paul's a dualist. And that Paul, you know, that he really does denigrate the body. No, I think that's wrong. And that's a, that's a misreading of, because Paul goes to some lengths to describe this principle of the flesh. If we miss that, first of all, it's not simply the body. It's the way that the body is written over with the law. Uh, so that in some way we lose access to just reality is what we're describing. And the reality, the real, that it intrudes upon this imaginary, the ego, and the symbolic, which are just these posited orders. And so this is the idea of the death. You know, I'm just doing Zizek here, that he's reading all this material, Romans 6, 7, and 8, as an atheist. In other words, he's just saying, yeah, you can do all this. In fact, he, in his understanding, you need to be an atheist. Because the, the problem with belief in God is that what we would do with God is we would always put God in the place of the symbolic order. 
In other words, that, that obscene superego supplement, which is punishing. You know, when we say obscene, think obscene, think evil. Sometimes I think we just think, oh, people that are caught up in being legalists. But I think truly evil people. I always go dark here, but I think the dark, the, I think you have to go to the worst things that people do. I remember a couple of years ago, a guy killed all of his children. He had two children and he killed his wife and he stuffed them in oil drums. And why did he do this? Because he, they were the, in the way of his girlfriend. He had a new girlfriend. So the obstacle, the obstacle cause of desire. What makes the girlfriend so desirable? Well, in a sense, the obstacle. And if you name the obstacle, Oh, that's my wife and children. Uh, there's several news stories I can think of where that's happened. A woman who, you remember the woman who drowned her two, two children because she wanted a new boyfriend. It's not an unusual, well, I, I hope it's unusual. But in other words, I think that evil people are an illustration of a, a universal. See, this is where it goes dark because I think we all have tendency. We all... Actually, we all understand what evil is because we, we've been close enough to it. This is Freud, you know, that his point with neurosis, we tend to think that neurosis, that private thing that I might do, is in some way the kernel of who I am. But Freud's point is, no, that's just mechanical. The thing that you would do in compulsion to repeat is the thing that he hits upon. That's like a machine. And to identify yourself with it, you know, this is, I think, the great mistake, imagining that Romans 7 is the normal Christian life. Romans 7 is a depiction of the mechanics of the fall. We all relate to that because we're all familiar with the dynamic. We're all subject to it. It may be that we fall back, that we have that tendency, but the point is that ain't really who we are that our neuroses, our sin, is not definitive of who we are. But who we are is to be found in Christ. Strangely enough, I think Zizek would say all of this. There's part of me, it's like, why is this even an interest to Zizek? He's an, if he's an atheist, and, and I suppose it's an interest because the, the journey that Paul goes through, through, uh, through Romans there in those you know, chapters 6, 7, and 8 or, or so, which is a fascinating study because, you know, I find myself, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm trying to determine this may be a, a bad thing. I'm like, as I'm reading through uh, your book, here, it was like, okay, is this a good guy or a bad guy? Yeah, I know he's an atheist, but is he a good guy or a bad guy? I read things and, you know, even with Freud, and as I, I think about like the, the death drive, and I don't, I don't know that I fully got it all wrapped up yet, but the death drive, and I think of what Paul says in chapter 7, and I know that that's not who I am, but by golly, Paul, there are days that that struggle, it's, it's like the mind will play tricks, you know, just temporarily. I mean, I, I, mean, I know it's a lie. Mm-hmm. It, still doesn't, it still doesn't keep somebody, what was it uh, Matt was talking about? I, I thought it was an awesome illustration, and maybe it was Zizek, at the porno star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, the middle, in the middle of a sex scene, he's got to go look at pictures, you know, to get an erection. I, I can't preach that in that manner. Yeah, probably not. But that is the, the reality. It, it's, it's like the, um, the guy who has to kill his wife and children because for some reason 
he thinks that, that this girl is going to bring him some life, some fulfillment. And usually what happens is, is uh, uh, well, besides, let, let's say they never find out he's the guy. That relationship, he's going to realize that I really have not gotten any further. Maybe, maybe even worse. So I feel that and that struggles some, sometimes in my own life. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, that it is the common feeling. Zizek's crude, and his crudely, it just hits upon this theme, you know, the, the, the sex and death thing. It's there in Paul, you notice. It's there in chapter 7. He's using the illustration of the woman, the, the, this woman who is married or unmarried, who would consort with her lover. That's Paul's illustration. If she consorts with her lover and her lover is her husband, well, there's no problem. But of course, that's not really the illustration in Zizek's point. True consorting almost requires, in this perverse understanding of love, you require the obstacle, the obstacle cause of desire. Because deep within me is this kernel of something that cannot be captured by society or whatever, that in some way who I am can only be in a transgressive relationship that I can have true love. How, how many people do you know? I mean, isn't that just the human story? It's not that you can love the one you're with. <laughs> that in some way the transgressive relationship, the obstacle cause of desire, that is a description of the law, the way that the law functions. So we often think of law only, you know, there's the two sides of the law. There's the pharisaical, you know, that the person can take the position of, the, of Paul in which you enact the law by killing Christians. I think we picture Paul the wrong way. We, we, have, we picture Paul like Luther. You've heard me do this whole thing. That he was stricken, you know, and guilt. Paul never says he was stricken with guilt. He says, I was guiltless. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was righteous in regard to the law, faultless. He says that in Philippians and then in Galatians. And then the better he was, the more he excelled as a Pharisee, the more he persecuted the church. Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. Why was he the chief of sinners? Because he persecuted the church. Why did he persecute the church? Because he was keeping the law. Paul's law-keeping, his righteousness, was his evil. Those coincide. That is one side of evil. In a sense, that's the worst side of evil. I don't know that you can say one's worse than the other. But, of course, what we're describing is corporate evil, that Paul had the assurance of his fellow Pharisees and you know, the leading Jews, that this evil was good. But of course, that's what the Nazis do, but that's what every culture does. It's necessary to slaughter the Native Americans. It's not, you know, you, we can just go through. The, what would be evil becomes good in this corporate understanding of the symbolic order. That's the law-keeping that you're going to establish the law. But in the, there's another way of establishing or enacting the law, and that's through transgression. And that is that in the Genesis story, they actually enact a law through transgressing another law. And then the knowledge of good and evil is its own law, a law unto itself, in which they enact, they become the ethicists. 
this is Bonhoeffer, and I, you know, this it, it hits me that Bonhoeffer sometimes can sound like Zizek. I think as conservatives, we've drawn back from what Bonhoeffer actually said. He really wants Christianity without the religion, the non-religious version. I think that's very close to what what he's describing. I think is why Zizek thinks that a true Christian must be an atheist. Because what we've gotten rid of is this perverse corporate thing that can get a grip on us, or it can be even tapping into it privately. It's the same thing. And so in some way, that obscene superego supplement that makes love possible. And Zizek knows he's not talking about agape love. In other words, he tries to distinguish between this obscene, perverse love and then he says, well, this is not agape love. So Zizek, if he was a Christian, even not, uh, maybe this is just a fair statement to make of him regardless. He's definitely, if, if I understand right, he rejects a, a penal substitution. Yeah, yeah, that's his main target. So that the subject arises over and against the real of the body, the symbolic or the soul has to be paid for by death, murder even of its empirical bearer. I think that's what he's fighting against, correct? Mm -hmm. That's it. He's, he's in conversation with enough Christians that he understands that is a perverse form of Christianity. He understands there's alternatives to that. Right. He's been picked up by, you know, I'm not the only one that has uh, recognizes the Christian, that, that this is a understanding that can be incorporated. I'm I'm a little different than people like Marcus Pound or some people just want to integrate what he's doing wholesale. Right. And there is a kind of fascination with an atheistic Christianity. Peter Rawlins, he's actually Irish, but he's out on the West Coast that he has a whole following. I don't know what his following is, but he's doing Zizek, but just straight up as a Christian. And, and of course, I think we can do better than that. I think Zizek, he, you just watch him on YouTube. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it. Connor Cunningham said that he assured him he was not on cocaine or anything, but he sure looks like it. And he, he finds people repulsive. He really doesn't like people, I don't think. But what he's saying in this chapter, he's saying that we need specificity of Christ. We need the revelation of Christ in Zizek's understanding. So he's very orthodox. Now, this sounds strange. He, he's an orthodox atheistic material <laughs> because he thinks that a departure from orthodox Christianity, even on the issue of baptism, the specific nature of this thing, he thinks is only to be had in traversing the fantasy with Christ in dispelling this thing. That is that what takes place in Christ is very specific. In that sense, you know, then you, you pass through that, and then you even have the atheistic materialist doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is that corporate feeling, you know, that identity that you get having passed through the naming the fundamental fantasy and then he talks about the union organizer, Joe Hill. Well, the thugs killed Joe Hill, but you can't kill Joe Hill. 
because the, the union is going to continue to organize and Joe Hill lives. And of course, Zizek thinks that all good communists are all, and he, he would say the one place you can't find the Holy Spirit is in the church <laughs> because they've not traversed the fantasy. They haven't named the fantasy. You have to name the fantasy. When I was a child, I, the, my, in other words, the fantasy is there, I think. It must function differently for all of us. I know exactly what my fundamental fantasy was, that I could fly. And I, it's not that I dreamed I could fly, which is what I was doing. But when you're a little kid, you don't know when you're dreaming or not dreaming. I just assumed I could fly. I think that all of us posit an immortality for ourselves. You know, this is Freud's note. He says that in the unconscious, there is no death. That in some way, our ego, we posit this immortal, this innately immortal soul that is life within ourselves. And part of Christianity that is not named in what, you know, evangelicalism or in a lot of Christianity is that lie. You won't die. You'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. Oh, that's precisely what we've believed in positing the innately immortal soul. I even had a professor at Ozark said, do you know who Don DeWell was? Yeah, yeah. Don DeWell, a, a lovely man, you know, just so charismatic, but totally, <laughs> it's theology. Well, you know, he said, well, we all are a little piece of God. I don't know if he knew, he was just doing... Plato or doing Greek. You know, I think this is everywhere. I don't know that it's always that you're positing innate immortality, but that's the common belief in Christianity that, oh, we have these innately immortal souls, and that's what gets saved. Well, if it's the innately immortal soul that gets saved, you just changed up all of Christianity. Because if we're innately immortal, we're not saved from death and destruction. You know, this is why eternal torturous existence, I think, makes sense for people. Sure, sure it does. Because that you can't be destroyed. Even God can't destroy you. That hell becomes an affirmation of our own fundamental fantasy. Now, hell for others, of course. Sure. <laughs> it's, I, I find it amazing how it's all, all tied together and you go down one rabbit hole, and all of a sudden, uh, there's there's a lot of lot of other things. I I have to be careful not to correct all the silliness that I see every day. Some somebody had made the statement. Um, I had seen it on social media in my in my church or something. You know, hey, uh, we're gonna live forever. We just got to decide where we're gonna live. Yeah, yeah. That whole you're going to die part um, is you're going to die. It, it's interesting, and maybe I think uh, I picked this up at the end of that chapter with Zizek, is that the only way to life is not the acceptance of, like an acceptance of Jesus, I believe in you, Jesus, but the participation in that death. We, we, we literally have to, to die, and, and we have to join in with, with that death and, and, and die ourselves. Baptism. That we die and we're raised again. That's why Zizek insists that we can't let go of baptism. Isn't that strange? <laughs> <laughs> he fights for it better than we do. 
When I was doing this dissertation, I was very hesitant. I, I just really wanted to deal with Chapter 7. Mm-hmm. And Connor Cunningham uh, said, no, you got to do 6 and 8. And I'm glad he insisted. But, I, you know, not being a biblical scholar, I felt great trepidation going into this. But once I got into the literature, the material, I discovered this is the dip. What we're describing here are the different ways that people deal with the material in Romans 6. You know, the typical Zwinglian, you know, which is sort of everybody. We're, we're more Catholic in our view of the efficacy of baptism. Sure. But the Zwinglian view is that it, it's an outward sign of an inward event, right, right. <clears throat> which sounds harmless enough. But of course, the idea is the outward and the inward are not coordinated. Yeah. That the sign and the signified are not coordinated. And, and you can do all of Christianity that way. And strangely enough, James Dunn, I always thought, oh, James Dunn is going to be great on Romans 6. He's terrible on Romans 6 because he's positing this thing that the sign and the signified, that it is just a sign that floats free. That's the human problem. And what we're saying in Christ is that what is the sign of baptism, the sign of the Lord's Supper, the signs are are no longer detached from the signified, what they signify. That is that we really believe that Christ's body is truly present, the full presence of God. But of course, we cannot equate the sign and the signified. We can't say they're the same thing, but the two then are tied together in who Christ is. The problem that we are more than our biological body, but we are our biological body. It's a kind of odd approach to it. I think it's an entry into an orthodox understanding of of chapters like Romans 6. Dying with Christ. What is it that we're doing? First of all, it's not simply that Christ died. And this Zizek picks up, and I don't know where or how he picks it up. He sounds like Richard Hayes. We don't have faith in Christ. We have the faith of Christ. Right, right. It's not that Christ is an object that we admire. He is the, the one who we are to imitate. That sets you up for Romans 8. If you don't get that in Romans 6, you're probably going to miss it in Romans 8. And that is that we are in the place of Christ, following Christ, putting on Christ, clothing ourselves in Christ so that we have that perspective. He's not an object outside of us. And that's the sense that the true presence of Christ, I think, is that it's walking, as this is just Paul's language, we walk as he walked, that we imitate his faith. That, of course, is Paul's argument about Abraham. Why circumcision? Have you ever thought about that? That's strange. Not a whole lot, so go. let's go for it. <laughs> You know about castration and the castration complex? Yeah, we, uh, yeah. In Freudian psychoanalysis that, you know, you pass through the castration complex, that is that the father has the power. No, you know, don't think penises are, the, but it, it's actually all symbolic. And the idea that when you pass through the castration complex, you give yourself over, you begin the law of the father, the superego, the con- you know, the conscience, not conscious, but conscience, is put into place. 
so that you serve the law, that uh, a refusal of castration is that you are the law, that the pervert directly identified. So what's happening with Abraham? Why circumcision? I think it is a sign, but in this sign, circumcision is the law, but the law directs, directly points to God as the one who has the power to propagate. In other words, what does Abraham want? He wants life through a son. That's the way he would propagate himself. That's the way he would have life. How can he do that? Well, normally he would do that through normal marriage relationships and having children. But the idea is, oh yeah, but that comes from God. Only God gives life. That's the sign of circumcision. You do not have life within yourself. Okay. Now, I don't know if you can preach that either or not. But. I can try. <laughs> I'm just fascinated going back through Genesis. And, and I do find that it, it has, has a tie into this. And, and I, I feel like there's so much to learn. And, and I feel like this part of me says, why wasn't I taught this earlier on? And, and partly because those that uh, were employed by the school, I, I, find, I find it all fascinating. And, and again, I'm... Uh, I'm fighting my way through. It's not complicated. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually quite simple. But the, the things that are most simple, we don't have language for. Sure. Because we normally just don't articulate these things. Yeah. If you keep going back to the Genesis, this Genesis 3, I think it's all right there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the symbolic order that, takes, that displaces God. Right. The relationship to God is displaced by that symbolic order, and that then depicts their own uh, attempt that they're, they're, first of all, they were naked and not ashamed, and then they're ashamed. Suddenly they're ashamed. They would hide from God. They would hide from one another. They would even hide, apparently. The unconscious is posited there. That what we would refuse this is Freud, but this is there in Genesis 3. You don't have to do Freud, but it's, it's a confirmation of the same thing. A lie posits an unconscious thing, something we would deny. What's denied? Well, death. You won't die. You'll be like gods. In our unconscious, you know, I don't, I don't think we go around saying I won't die, though we do. Sometimes I'm innately immortal. But what we tend to do is grab on to the positive side of that. The conscious side of that is the knowledge of good and evil, the symbolic order. I'm a law keeper, or I'm, a, I'm an important man. I, you know, I have status, and therefore I've established myself. That's the human drive that we're describing. Yeah. I'm not saying we can't do without that, but to do it on our own, to imagine that we, can create, that we have life within ourselves or we can establish ourselves. We do need community. We do need that affirmation. We do need, you know, this is the whole picture. We need the clothing, and that's the last scene, you know, in Revelation that Christ provides the white robes of righteousness. You need to be clothed in Christ to put off the shame. If you don't have the robes of righteousness, you will be cast out, put to shame. It's just a, a va valence between shame or you can create your own clothing, your own pride, your own system. Right. And this is the Kierkegaard stuff in the sickness unto death. That's all he's describing in the sickness unto death. He's just saying the same thing in a different idiom. Well, I feel like I've grown a little bit, so. 
All good. I'll say, say the question again. I Describe the Hegelian dialectic and its role in uh, philosophy and psychology and describe how this is understood by Zizek. Hegel is just for everybody. I know that sounds like an exaggeration. Derrida is going to say, oh, I just do nothing but Hegel. Zizek is going to say he's Hegelian. So there's a sense that Hegel is the end of, you know, we're, this, this course is in philosophy, but my claim is, yeah, but philosophy is just an articulation of psychology. And Hegel is the guy, the dialectic. Ultimately, you know, he goes through the slave-master dialectic. We've done that. The slave is in the advantageous position because he is in the position of recognizing, oh, the power of the master does not reside in the master, but in the he can kill me. And so he realizes it's the fear of death. And then he comes up with this, the dialectic, you know, eventually is between nothing and something. That's the ultimate dialectic. But you need to tarry with the negative. That's Zizek, that's the name of one of his books, Tearing with the Negative. It's a phrase from Hegel, in which Hegel pictures, you know, there shoots a bloody hand, there shoots a head. That is, you don't hold together. The body doesn't hold together. And that not holding together is itself a kind of, that nothingness, that death, can be made into an absolute. We have to look death in the face. And that's part of the dialectic, because through the difference, the identity through difference. This is just Derrida, but it's Hegel. That we can arrive then at the synthesis. You know, this this is not actually in Hegel, but it's a good way of describing Hegel. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You've heard that? Mm -hmm. The positing of a thesis and then the opposite of it. And then history is the dialectic in which God himself is the synthesis bringing that all together and we're participants in that dialectic, that dialectical unfolding in which things will synthesize. God is in becoming through history, through the dialectic between nothing and something. We need death and nothingness as authentic part of authentic being. This is Martin Heidegger. He's doing Hegel too. Understand this sounds, oh, this is that funny philosophy stuff. Oh, the guy's going to become a Nazi. In other words, this is evil philosophy, this tearing with the negative. When Na Na Napoleon rides in, Hegel says, there's the world spirit on a horse. Mm. In other words, he literally saw Napoleon's consolidation. He thought that, oh, here is the synthesis of all things. You understand Marxism is going to flow out of this. When you know you get disgusted with the abstractions, Oh, remember, yeah, but it's not simply going to remain in the abstract. Marx isn't going to stay in the library, that he's going to be enacted in Lenin and Stalin, and they're going to kill hundreds of, you know, thousands of people, millions of people. That, that the most deadly century on record was the 20th century. And I think it is the unleashing of this idea that we are putting our finger right in the middle of things. There is the notion that we can manipulate things. That's why that century was so bloody. This is why I've written things that has Christ unleashed the violence, because there is a truth in Christ that once it's perverted, and this was Kierkegaard's warning, the perversion of Christian truth is more dangerous than just good old simple paganism, because now you imagine that you can take control of 
the world. You know, that's the Christ. The whole point of Christianity is that Christ is going to change up the world. People that are going to come in his train are going to take what he, that's what, that's what Zizek recognizes. That's what Marxism recognizes. That's there in Hegelianism. That's there, I think, in, that is that what has taken place in the modern is we recognize we can put our hands on the levers of power and manipulate it. But of course, for evil. So I think that there is either the recognition of the one or the other. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that our Christian brothers and sisters, but it's obvious that with Trumpism, and right. that it is still the perverse, it's the same thing as the Nazi Christianity. Nazi Christianity, yeah. That's a, that's a scary statement, uh, Kierkegaard, as far as the perversion of Christian truth is more dangerous than kind of good... Uh, good paganism. Because in paganism, you don't imagine that you can undo the law. I use the illustration, uh, an Apache warrior is not likely to say to Cochise, Chief, I'm I'm not going to go on the raid today because, you know, I, I really want to pursue my flute playing. I just kind of want to think about the meaning of life. So I'll hang back here at the teepee. And you boys go on out. I'm not really into that whole macho, brave stuff anymore. <laughs> he can't do that. In other words, in a traditional culture, that is not a possibility that is posed to him. I, I hope I'm wrong about that. Is it an impossibility? I don't know that. But for most of history, what we have are people just adhering to the law. What law? Well, the symbolic order in their culture. And that is deadly. It is literally enslaving. It's oppressive to certain classes of people, certain genders, and just deadly to the slave class who are subject to being treated as unhuman. In other words, that's the whole point of crucifixion. Here's a sign that these people are not human. That's the history of the world. And in saying this, we mount evil upon evil, but I, I think we have to, to recognize things ain't good, and that we need salvation, and I believe that, that we need to name the evil to understand what it is that Christ conquers, what he defeats. Right. Is that too dark? Well, it's dark. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's reality. It's always good. I'm glad we could do it. I'm glad we could do it. I enjoy it too, although it's easier to hide on Tuesday nights. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave. Have a good day. Uh, you too, Paul. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.